0: We are continuing, actually finishing up our study in Paul's letter, first letter to the church at Corinth and this is I think the 37th message that will come from 1 Corinthians and one of the things that I love about 1 Corinthians is that it shows us that God loves imperfect people. He starts off the letter by referring to them as saints in Christ Jesus, and yet when you read through 1 Corinthians, you realize that they are God's children, but they are God's problem child, if you will. Uh, They have issues, and Paul addresses those issues, and now he's going to close out this letter. Uh, It's soon going to be delivered, and he's got some final words for them, and and final words, uh, be it in a letter, be it in someone's life, are always dearest to us. They, they catch our attention. And so he is going to close it out. Now, we'll do things a little bit differently today. You'll need to keep your Bible open. I'm not going to read the chapter, then go back and work through it. But we'll read it as we work through it uh, together. And if you see an avalanche over here by the windows, don't worry about it. As long as it doesn't kill anybody underneath it with the snow, we'll be Okay, uh, that kind of su- surprised me, uh, but uh, in, our, in our final message in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 16 may be one of the least read chapters in all of 1 Corinthians. It's oft overlooked and it's skipped or it's read through hurriedly uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it's kind of boring in a sense. Paul just dropped some names of some people that we would have difficulty pronouncing their names, so we skip through it, we read through it quickly so we can close up our Bible and say we read 1 Corinthians and then move on to 2 Corinthians. But there's much more here than just name drops and final instructions. Um, As he gives these instructions, he gives instructions to the Corinthians about how to take up an offering for the poor. He shares his future travel plans with the Corinthians. He instructs them on how to deal with Timothy and the household of Stephanus, he explains why Paulus is absent in Corinth, and then he sends greetings from Aquila and Priscilla, and then he closes out with some last moments, uh, last words of affection from him. But really, more than just giving these instructions, Paul's doing something for us. Paul is showing us in his final word to Corinth how to live for other people. In fact, he's showing us how we can live for Jesus. By living for other people. And all of Corinthians is showing us how to live a cross-centered life. uh, How to make the cross the center of our life. And how it flows out of everything about us into every area of our life. And serving others is no different. In fact, Paul gives us the blueprint for this cross-centered life. And he's going to show us here that a cross-centered life is an others-centered life. That's the point. A cross-centered life is an others-centered life. If you want to live for Jesus, if you want to serve Jesus, if you want to love Jesus, then you've got to love others, and you've got to serve others, and you have got to live for others. John Piper said this, we serve God by serving others. We love him by loving others. We are not standing in the midst of two masters with each calling our name. We do not have to turn our backs on one to follow the other. No, God stands, I love this, God stands on the far side of the people in our lives. We can only reach out to him if we reach out to them. We live for them to live for him. But what does it mean to live for other people? Does it mean that you have to do spectacular things for other people? That ministry involves doing the the, the wonderful and the great and the grand at all times? And the answer to that is no. Uh, Don Whitney in his book on spiritual disciplines says this about Christian service. And he sums it up well. He says beyond the church walls, serving can manifest itself as babysitting for a neighbor taking meals to families in flux, running errands for the homebound, providing transportation for the one whose car breaks down, helping the lawn or home maintenance of someone else, feeding pets and watering plants for vacationers, and hardest of all, displaying a servant's heart in the home. And listen to what he says. Serving typically looks as unspectacular as the practical needs it seeks to meet. Let me say that again. Serving typically looks as unspectacular as the, tip, as the practical needs it seeks to meet. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to walk through this text, and I want us to see how we can have a cross-centered life by having an others-centered life. So how can we do this? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to resolve to help people. Help people. Look in verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany Me Now, what's going on here? Well, Paul begins this chapter with addressing a specific issue the Corinthians had asked him about. Taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, we know from Acts chapter 11 and chapter 12 that the Jerusalem church was experiencing great difficulties on a two-fold front. One, they were in the midst of a famine. You remember in Acts chapter 11 that a prophet by the name of Agabus prophesied that there was going to be a drought come through the land. Well, the drought had arrived in Jerusalem. And when you live in an agrarian society and culture, uh, a drought could be deadly. But on top of a drought, there was also persecution in the midst of the church. Uh, It started with the Apostle Paul and the Pharisees and the Jews. We know that Stephen had been killed in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. We know that James, the brother of John, had been run through with a sword and killed. Peter had been in prison. And the church in Jerusalem was in a difficult situation. They were hungry. They were starving. They were in jail. They were dying. And so what believers in Macedonia and surrounding areas did, they decided to take up an offering. And to send that offering to Jerusalem to help their brothers and sisters who were in need. And the Corinthians wanted in on it. They wanted to be able to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who were in need. And so they asked Paul, how are we going to do this? And so Paul says in verses 1 through 4, what I want you to do is I want you to take up an offering in this specific way and we'll get them the money. And in his directions, I think he's showing us that if one of the things we need to do whenever we reach out to help people as a church, as a people, is we've got to be a giving people. And he shows us how to give. Well, first he shows us that we need to give collectively. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia. Now, what this means was the offering was not a one church show. It wasn't just the church of Corinth who was taking up an offering. It wasn't just the church of Ephesus. It was all the churches in the surrounding area who were coming together to meet the needs that the church of Jerusalem had. Which I think is a reminder to us, isn't it? That one church can't do it all by themselves. I mean, one church can't reach the nations by themselves. One church can't feed everybody by itself. One church can't do everything that is needed to be done by itself. There are times when churches need to work together. They need to, to, to work hand-in-hand hand alongside one another. And that's one reason I absolutely love uh, Operation School Shoe, what we do here in, in the county. You know Why? Because it's not a Lakeville thing, it's not a, it's not a church down the road thing, a church up the road thing. We've got a bunch of churches in our county who come together. They give money, they give time, they, they buy shoes, they provide food, they paint faces, they supply school supplies for the kids. And on that day, you do not know who goes to what church. And nobody cares. Because we're there together to meet the needs, to get the gospel in kids' hearts By putting shoes on their feet. And and that's the point. And so Paul knows that the Corinthians are a part of something much larger. They are to give collectively. But also they're to give willingly. And I love what he does. In verse 2, he tells them, all right, on the first day of the week, that's on Sunday, put something aside and store it up, as the Lord's prospered you, he says, so there'll be no collecting when I come. Now, what does this mean? Paul knows that the Corinthians have a problem with pride, okay? And he knows that if he comes up and he takes up an offering, guess what some of them are going to do? Some of them are going to dig really deep just so they can impress Paul. And Paul says, I'm not going to come there and I'm not going to stand over top of their shoulders and and make sure they're given to this because I want them to give it from a willing heart. So here's what they do. I want them to give it secretly. All right? I want them to put something aside, and when they come together on church on Sunday, I want them to put it put it in, in a stash, take up a collection for it, and when I come by, I'll pick it up. He didn't want any undue stress or strain to be placed upon them when it came to giving. And uh, so he wants them to give willingly. But thirdly, they should give responsibly. Verse 3 through 4, Paul says that I'll send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Here's what Paul's saying. You've got some people you trust. You've got some people you give accreditation to. You trust them to take the money. So here's what we're going to do. I'll come by, get the money, and the people that you have entrusted to carry the money, they can take the money to Jerusalem. And he says if, if I need to go with them or they need to go with me, that's fine. I have no issues with that. You see, Paul wanted them to know that the money was going to be handled properly and correctly. And one of the the best things that whether it's Operation School Shoe, whether it's a church's budget or whatever it is, make sure that God's money is handled properly. I think we go through extreme measures to make sure that everybody has confidence that whenever they give, it's being spent right, it's being out in the open, and there's nothing to be Hidden and uh, so, just in case you wonder, I never touch it. I'm never near the money. Okay, uh, we take it up somewhere. Brothers count it. It goes in the bank, and that's it. Um, I, I, I've told them before. I don't touch it. I don't want to touch it. I don't want to be around it. Not that I'm a miser and I'm tempted to to steal it, but uh, uh, I just I just I trust them. And so Paul wants them to know that the church at Corinth had to have these. Uh, safeguards in place. So, one of the ways you serve others is by helping others. Do you see a need? Does it require you to give to meet it? Then be willing to do that. Help others. But, secondly, we serve others when we reach others. In verses 9 or 5 through 9, Paul is going to lay out his future travel plans. Um, he's riding from Ephesus, he wants to come back to Corinth. But he's running into an issue with getting back to them. So let's see what he says. He says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. and Perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effectual work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, as Paul's looking at his travel plans, he's got his calendar book out and he's looking at what he wants to do. Uh, He's in Ephesus. He wants to come by Corinth, and the Corinthians want him to come by. But he says the only problem is if I come back by right now, it's just going to be a fly by night stop. I'm just going to have to stop in, get the money, and I'm going to have to leave. And I'd just like to spend a little bit of time with you, maybe even the entire winter. Now, Paul has his plans. And Paul knows what he wants to do. But things kind of go out of whack for Paul. And, you know, so it is as well with ministry and reaching others. It's good for us to have plans. It's good for us to have vision. It's good for us to have something to work toward. But Paul shows us what we sometimes expect, should expect whenever we are wanting to reach people, wanting to help people, wanting to love people? Well, first he says we should expect uncertainty because he says, I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. He's got the best of intentions. But if you were to flip over into 2 Corinthians, even in the first chapter, do you know what Paul spends the first chapter doing in 2 Corinthians? Defending himself on why he hadn't made it to Corinth yet. You know what the Corinthians end up saying about Paul? Well, oh, Paul has great plans. Paul has it all written down, what he wants to do, but when it comes to fulfilling his plans, Paul is wishy-washy. He's got better ideas than he's got action. He never carries through with his actions. And so Paul begins in 2 Corinthians 1 basically telling them this, I don't know everything. I intended to come to you. I was sincere in my intentions to come to you, but things went went awry, and things were out of my control. In fact, look what Paul says. If you just flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, look what he says in verse 15. He says, because I was sure of this. Listen, he knew he was going to come to Corinth. He wanted to come to Corinth. He says, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Basically what Paul is saying is, did I just not come to you because I'm wishy-washy like some of you think I am? No, he said I was being sincere in that. Look down what he says in verse 23 but I called God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. What's Paul saying? Paul says, I'll tell you one thing, you better be glad I didn't come to Corinth. One, they hadn't listened to a single word that he had said in his first letter, and Paul was upset with them when he writes his second letter, and you talk about sarcasm. He lays it on them in 2 Corinthians, but, but the point of the matter is this. Paul, an apostle, had his plans to get to Corinth, the fellowship with him. But they went awry. And so it is with us, when we serve the Lord, there are times that things get interrupted. There are times when our plans don't go according to our plans and we have to be careful not to get frustrated, get discouraged, throw our hands up, get upset, get mad, and just just quit. But continue to serve God. So expect uncertainty. But while we expect uncertainty, we should also expect opportunity. Look what he says in verse 8. I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Paul was in Ephesus. And Paul said, I'll tell you why I'm staying in Ephesus. Because in Ephesus, there is a wide door. It's broad, easy to walk through. And it's a wide door for effective work. God is doing something marvelous in Ephesus, people are being saved. God is working in Ephesus. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman. I, I fish some, but not a lot. But I do know this. If you're fishing at a hole of water and the fish are biting, you don't leave that hole of water and go try and find them somewhere else. I mean, you stay as long as they're biting. And that's what Paul's saying at Ephesus. I'm not leaving here because God's doing something marvelous here, and I'll be there soon. But the fish are biting in Ephesus and I'm staying in Ephesus. And he saw Ephesus as a golden opportunity to get the gospel to other people. But with this opportunity, Paul wants us also to expect adversity. Because look what he says at the end of verse 9. There are many adversaries. Now you would think that if God had opened up a door of opportunity, that he would remove all obstacles. But such is not the case. We know from Acts 19 that Paul ran into adversity like you wouldn't believe. In fact, there's a silversmith in Ephesus. His name is Artemis. And he makes his money by crafting idols uh, and selling it to people. Well, guess what happened when the gospel came through Ephesus and everybody started getting saved? They quit buying false gods. They quit buying idols. And so his bottom line plummeted. So what does he do? He gets the other business owners together and says, if we don't do something with Paul, they're going to put us out of business. And so he creates a riot in the middle of Ephesus to try and kick Paul out of the city. So the gospel, as it goes forward, beloved, know this. As we long to seek to serve people by getting the gospel to people, expect adversity, expect roadblocks, expect offenses, expect people to be upset because the message we are delivering It's not just a scandal. It's an offense to people. You tell the good, upstanding, moral man that his goodness and his morality is not good enough to get him to heaven. And it's offensive. And they oppose the gospel. You tell the person who has always done everything on their own. Picked themselves up by their own bootstraps. And and depended on no one for anything that they've got in life. You tell them that in order to get to heaven, they've got to depend wholeheartedly on someone else other than themselves. And that person is Jesus. And it is an offense to them. Culture will oppose it. Church people sometimes will even oppose it. So don't think that if you are serving God, that God just paints some easy, peaceful, yellow brick road from here to glory. Such is not the case. There are times that he does it. But there are also times that adversity is also... A a, a, a signal, a sign that you are in the midst of God's will. So Paul's desire here is to reach others, right? to help others. Thirdly, Paul tells us to appreciate others. And this is in verses 10 through verse 20. And here's where he starts the name drops. He's going to introduce us to several different people uh, that have connections with Corinth. And Paul is going to give instructions to the Corinthians for how to treat these people. And in his instructions to the Corinthians, I think there are lessons for us to learn as well about how we should treat the servants of the Lord. Because, you know, let's be honest. Sometimes churches are like the Williams household, okay? Um... Kennedy's a little bit more mature, so she, she does sometimes a little bit better than the others. Uh, but Lily and Macy, bless their heart, they don't know how to treat each other. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, uh, I was texting with Jeff last night and told him that, you know, the girls were in the bathtub. Next thing you know, there's a fight in the bathtub, and I told him, he said, was it okay? I said, yeah, we didn't have anybody drown. I mean, that's how you, that's how you judge a successful bath in the Williams house. When nobody drowns, we're in good shape. Uh, but they have to learn to grow. And how do you treat one another? I'm all the time reminding them, she's your sister. Don't treat her that way. Kennedy comes to me last night. Lily throat kicked her and about killed her. So, so I mean, you know, I thought we're raising a future Baptist congregation and we don't even know it. Uh, but, but how should a church treat their brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, first Paul's going to tell us that we should encourage timid saints. Encourage timid saints. Look in verse 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. First he mentions Timothy to us. Now, if you read about Timothy in other places, here's what you know. You know that Timothy was like a son to Paul in the ministry, a a young son in the ministry. But you also get the sense that Timothy was a fearful person. Timothy was timid. Timothy was backwards. Timothy could allow his timidity to get the best of him. So much so, Timothy had ulcers. Paul had to write to him and tell him to take a little wine for your stomach's sake. In other words, Timothy, take some medicine for your stomach problems. And by the way, Timothy, God's not giving you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So, So live with that confidence. Timothy was a little bit backwards. Timothy was uh, not as confident as Paul. And so when he sends Timothy into Corinth to try and correct what's going on there, he knows he's sending him into ground zero. He knows he's sending him into a place where it's got the potential to wreck and ruin Timothy's ministry and Timothy's life. And so what's he do here? He instructs them to handle Timothy gently, to in, encourage him, to, to help him emotionally, to help him financially. Look what he, well, Again, look what he says. He says that you put him at ease. In other words, don't, don't upset him. Don't make him mad. Don't, don't, don't do something that would, 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 would trigger something in him. Uh, also, he says, don't despise him. Don't despise him. Uh, you know, there's some, there's some conflict going on in Corinth when Paul writes this. There's some people who say, I'm a Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, I'm of Peter. Well, if they know Timothy comes from the Paul camp, so to speak, those in the Apollos and Peter camp might, might despise him. And so he says, no. That was a good one. Uh, no, don't despise him. No, love him, cherish him, and as a matter of fact, help him out financially because he says, I want you to help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. I'm expecting the bro- him with the brothers. Now listen, with people like Timothy, with timid believers, sometimes all it takes is one mean-spirited comment from a brother or sister in Christ to ruin them. Just one, that's all it takes. And so what we need to do as believers is we need to determine that with the help of the Lord, I'm going to be a builder, not a breaker. I'm going to be someone who compliments rather than complains. And so let us seek to build people up in the faith, to compliment people in the faith, to help people along in the faith. So encourage timid servants. Is there a brother or sister who seems to be a little bit backwards about serving in certain areas? You have no idea what a compliment, a pat on the back, a good job can do to help them Along, so let's encourage timid saints. Secondly, let's be patient with wise servants. Okay, uh, here he introduces us in verse twelve to Apollos. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at his not at all his will to come. Now, he will come when he has opportunity. Now, what is this all about? Well, Paul had urged. Apollos to come to Corinth. Now who was Apollos? Apollos was a very respected Jew originally from Ephesus and uh, he was so well respected that uh, he would go into the synagogues and he would dispute with the Jews and show them that Jesus was Christ from the Old Testament and he built up a pretty good reputation for being a brilliant scholar and one who loved the Lord. Well since the Corinthians loved that type of thing, those who were smart and those who uh, seemed to be prestigious, there were some in Corinth who developed an Apollos group who said that um, they may have even been saved underneath his, 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 his ministry, that we are of Apollos. We are his disciples. And then there were some who said, well, we're of Peter. And then some says, well, I'm of Paul. And then you had the super spiritual crowd, which says, well, you can have them. I'm of Jesus. You know, they're, they're the ones who are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And that's what's going on in Corinth. And so what Paul does here is Paul says, Apollos, you need to come to Corinth. You need to come now. He says, I urged him to come. But Paul says he won't come. He's not willing to come right now. But I assure you, he will come when he is ready. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think Apollos is using great wisdom. There's commentators who debate why Apollos stayed away from Corinth but I think one of the reasons he stayed away from Corinth was he knew that his presence there could probably cause the divisions to grow worse that his presence would make the Apollos crowd harder in their stance for him and it would cause the Paul Peter and Jesus crowd to stand stronger against him and so he was going to wait until Paul had the opportunity to write them to correct what was going on to fix the divisions and then he would come later now Let me say this. I think there's also something here for us to be careful about telling other people what God's will for their life is. I mean, here's the Apostle Paul. He said, I urged him to come. I wanted him to come. And you know what? He wouldn't come. I think Apollos is right in this situation. And and I'm I'm always skeptical about people who go around all the time telling everybody what God's will for their life is. Um, you know, we're God's children and he's big enough to tell us, (laughs) to to direct us in the path we ought to go when it comes to his, his will. So what should we do? Be patient. Be patient with people when they don't act exactly the way we want them to act. They don't do exactly what we want them to do. So be patient, all right? Be patient with wise servants. Not only that, but encourage timid servants. But thirdly, Follow dedicated servants. Now jump down to verse 15. 15 through 18. We're introduced to some others. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus, were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaia Achaicus, because they had made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Here, Paul mentions the household of Stephanus. He mentions Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And when he mentions them, he mentions them with great fondness because he said they were my first converts in Achaia. Um, they signaled the beginning of the work of God in a Region, And so they had a very special place in the heart of the Apostle Paul. And uh, I read this this week and been with my family so closely the last two weeks with the passing of Papa and then Friday with the passing of, of Mamaw just sitting around talking about family in the last, uh, for me, the last 36 years I've been amongst them. Um, they, they, We were talking about uh, one night... We'd camped out at my, my aunt and uncle's house. And uh, I hadn't forgotten about it, but it just refreshed my memory. Uh, first person I ever led to the Lord, first person I ever led to the Lord, a bunch of cousins camping out at uncle's house was my, was my cousin Olin. Um, and uh, we were just first before I, you know, you get your priorities straight. Uh, first, they messed up when I told them I had the book or I had the movie of Force Gump memorized. They didn't believe me. So I started at the very beginning. and I quoted the entire movie all the way to the end and uh word for word, line for line, verbatim, uh they still talk about that to this day, and then, how in the world we go from <laughs> Greenbow, Alabama to the Romans Road? I have no idea, but we arrived there uh with my cousin Olin, and I was going over Romans ten with him, sharing the gospel with him, and that night in the ten he 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 was saved, and years later we would. Back and forth, texting back and forth. He, he, he went to another church, um, and on uh, May 9, 2012, uh, just after the tornado, the, the snowstorm that hit after the tornado, he was on his way to work and hit a slick spot in Brethet County and, and wrecked his car and went over the hill and, and, and was killed. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I've thought about that over and over and over and over again. Uh, so thankful for that night and how marvelous it is that, that, that the first person the Lord ever saved through, through the ministry of sharing the gospel with them in my life uh, has now reaped his eternal reward and he's, he's in heaven waiting. That's got a special place in your heart. And so Paul felt that fondness for the house of Stephanus uh, as well. And here's what he says. Look what he says about him. He says they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Now, if you have a different translation, uh, the King James, I love its translation. It says they addicted themselves to the ministry. That's what devoted means. It means it wasn't a hobby. It wasn't just a ministry. It was their way of life. To serve others was their way of life. He calls them in verse 16, fellow workers and laborers, that is, they were hard workers. And Paul says that when I haven't been around you, the Corinthians, these believers have refreshed my spirit. In other words, they to Paul was like a cool, cold drink of water on a hot, blistering day. They refreshed me. They filled me with life. They they encouraged me. And again, we are brought to this truth. When it comes to other saints, you will either refresh people or you will exhaust people. You will either fill them with life or you will suck the life right out of them, one or the other. And so the questions we have to ask ourselves is, which one am I? Am I a refresher or am I an exhauster? Do I fill people with life or do I suck the life out of people? And so, may God help us to be refreshers. Paul will use this word later when he writes to 2 Timothy. Or when he writes to Timothy the second time. And Paul is in a Mamertine dungeon. And Paul is under arrest facing death. And he writes to Timothy and he says these words. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus. Because when he was in Rome, he wasn't ashamed of my chains. But he sought me out very diligently. And he refreshed me. He refreshed me. The idea is that Onesiphorus had looked for Paul, had found Paul in a dungeon, and he lit, did everything he could to ease Paul's burden. That's what we're called upon to do. We're called upon to follow these people. That's what Paul says when he says, Submit to them, be subject to such as these, follow their example, mimic them, imitate them. For in so doing, you will be a servant of others. And then Paul tells us to receive loving servants. If you look down in verse 19 and 20, you find two people who meant the world to Paul and who meant the world to the Corinthians. He says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, that's Priscilla together with the church and their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now what's this. Well, now he mentions Aquila and Priscilla, and we know from the book of Acts. Aquila and Priscilla was a husband and wife, and they were tent makers, and they were from Corinth. And when Paul comes through Corinth, Paul worked with them in making tents to help raise money to supply his missionary journey. And when Paul left Corinth and he went to Syria and then he went to Ephesus, Aquila and Priscilla went with him. And so now they're with Paul in Ephesus as he writes back to the Corinthians. And he says, oh, and by the way, by the way, Aquila and Priscilla is here with me. And he doesn't just say they send you their greetings. No, they send you hearty greetings. Hearty greetings. Um, You know, we we all know what it was like growing up. You go to a family reunion and there's... You know, there's just some family members, they just pat you on the back and hug you a little bit, but there's always that either aunt or that uncle who, most of the time it's an aunt wearing too much lipstick, that she just grabs you and hugs the far out of you and just kisses you, and, and, you know, you got the stuff all over you. You know, there's a difference in a hug and her hug. Well, that's basically what this is about. There's a difference in just saying, oh, yeah, by the way, they just send you their greetings. No, they send you a sloppy, wet kiss, is what Aquila and Priscilla are sending you. They love you. And you feel that affection in them. And so, too, we are called upon to do the same thing, to to be an Aquila and Priscilla to others and to receive the same type of affection from others. Now, when Paul says greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, we that's cultural. That's one of the ways that they... Greeted one another in those days and ages. We, we shake hands these days. So uh, when I'm standing in the back going out, just, just shake my hand. You don't have to kiss me as you're going out. I know you love me. Uh, but, but that's what he is saying here. So as Paul is telling us that we are to appreciate people, we appreciate people by encouraging people, by, by being patient with people, by following their example, and by receiving their, their love. And let me say this to you. Has someone been a blessing to you? Has someone served alongside of you? Has someone encouraged you when you were down, picked you up when when you didn't feel like it, and, and, and spurned you to go on to, or spurred you on to go on and serve the Lord with gladness? Then you know what you ought to do? You ought to thank them. You ought to show your appreciation to them. You ought to encourage them. As we say around here, send your flowers to people while they're alive. Let them know what they mean to you while they're living. If they've been a blessing, tell them. And so show your appreciation to people. You don't know what that will mean to others. And then fourthly and finally, Paul closes out the letter by showing us we should motivate people. Motivate people. Their being around us should cause them to serve the Lord, love the Lord. And live for the Lord. Paul takes the pen, and I love what happens in verse 21. Look what he says. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, understand when Paul wrote most letters in the New Testament, he just dictated them, and someone else would write down his words. But to authenticate his message, often Paul would take the pen, and at the end, he would sign off on it, or he would leave a note in his own handwriting. That's what he does here with the letter to the Corinthians. He says, I'm writing this with my own hand. And as he closes this letter, he gives a word of caution. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. A word of caution. (laughs) And the word of caution is this. If you don't love the Lord, you will be accursed. A curse, what does that mean? It means that all the curses of the law, the anathema, will be upon you. How do I know I love the Lord? How do you know you love the Lord? Well, the way you know you love the Lord is evidenced, not by what you say. It's evidenced in how you live. And matter of fact, if you go up to verse 13, Paul gives these commands to the believers. Be watchful. Look for the Lord. Stand firm. That is, be immovable. Act like men. Mature. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That's how you know you love the Lord. You are growing in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You're growing in your love for the Lord and in your service to other people. And Paul says, but if you don't, then let him be accursed. And when he prays for the Lord's return, our Lord come. I think what he may be saying is this. All right, there may be some in Corinth who are are fooling everybody, who are putting on a show. Well, there'll be a day that is coming that will separate the pretenders from the possessors, and that is when the Lord Jesus comes. So come, Lord. And then from his word of caution, he moves to a word of affection. Look what he says. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus amen. Isn't it amazing that with all the problems that's going on in Corinth, Paul closes out with expressing his love for his children at Corinth. You know, God has a lot of children. He has a lot of children. God loves us all, even his problem children, <laughs> even a problem child. He loves them as well. And when you think Of all that's going on in Corinth, division, false rumors about Paul, sexual immorality, fighting over areas of conscience, um, uh, disunity at the Lord's Supper, pride over spiritual gifts, confusion about the resurrection, all that's what's going on in Corinth could be settled if the Corinthians would do two things, if they would love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their mind and with all their strength if they would love their brothers and sisters as themselves, And I think that's why 1 Corinthians 13 is such a beautiful, beautiful portrait. Because in the midst of controversy, in the midst of division, in the midst of fighting, in the midst of fussing, in the midst of pride, in the midst of arrogance, Paul calls us to stop it. And the only way we stop it is if we truly love one another. So I want to close out our study in 1 Corinthians by simply reading one more time that golden chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. Because if you want to know how to live for Jesus by living for others, here's how you do it. You do it by loving. And what is loving like? Well, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part. The greatest of these is love. Let's pray.